Welcome to another hard-hitting episode of Customer Cafe by Calabria. Calabria is a tool that turns good account managers into great account managers through the power of great collaboration. A great account manager is a team player. This podcast is made for those in sales, customer success, and account management as a place to caffeinate, ideate, and collaborate. Subscribe now for the latest brew. Let's Let's hit hit the the grind. grind. Welcome to the show. My name is Menachem Pritzker. I'm the VP of Growth here at Calabria. I'm joined here by my co-host Sharon Weiss Greenberg. Hey. Hey. Senior Content Manager here at Calabria. And we're joined today by Simon Gerstler. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks very much for hosting me. Looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, me too. Uh, It's going to be a great one. You began your sales career in jewelry and fashion industries. Uh, you've been selling tech since 2000. That's quite a, it's quite a jump. Um, you're on the founding team of two companies that are acquired, growing them both from zero to over a thousand clients. Uh, you're currently the CEO of Pipe Global? Correct, yes. And uh, you've worked with over 60 different early stage companies, helping them build their sales strategy and training their sales team. Uh, you're a Lumina sales coach. You live in Renana. You're married with four kids. and have a golden retriever. Uh, he's, men- he's mentored dozens of sales professionals, helping many to find jobs, and you post daily about sales-related topics on LinkedIn. So find Simon Gerstler and follow him on LinkedIn. So Simon, tell us about being an account manager. How do you start a career in that? How do you start a career in it? You start a career like pretty more junior, pretty yeah. further on the chain. Um, a lot of people break their teeth as an SDR, BDR. It's got different names, as you can imagine these days. Um, but yeah, that's the way I started. I started um, cold calling. I started knocking on doors. And, that, and that's the way you really get to understand. You, you start to build relationships with people. And as you develop more expertise in in, pro, in the product or the technologies, then you, you can move further up the chain, which could be cat manager, account executive, customer success, all the way through to VP sales, CRO, but you've got to start um, at the bottom probably. But when I say the bottom, it's it's the, it's a great learning. And I sometimes miss those days of doing random cold calls and seeing it's just a great challenge to see if you can get past the gatekeeper or if you get speaking to someone directly, if you can get your message across and book that demo. Yeah. Uh, do you do a lot of cold calling now? Not so much. No, I don't do any cold calling at all. I help other companies um, with their cold calling, their messaging, their cold emailing, their cold LinkedIn, because these days... If you're only cold calling, then you're you're giving yourself less chances to succeed. There's some people, myself included, if I see a number pop up on my phone during the day, I'm generally pretty busy. But even if I'm not, if I don't recognize that number, very little chance that I'll answer that call. So if you're just calling and calling and calling, you're missing out on a big subsection of people um, that you might be selling to eventually. Let me ask you, you had mentioned that you would start often as an SDR learning how to cold call and there are many critical skills that you that you picked up. Um, when it comes to a lot of jobs in many industries, a lot of times when someone's good at a job, they often get promoted to the next level to management, what have you. And sometimes that's a great idea. And sometimes that's a mistake when it comes to different types of jobs and sales, like SDRs versus account management versus enterprise versus SMB, you know, does one person fit all those boxes or sometimes is it wise to keep one person in one spot? It could be wise to keep one person in one spot. Um, the danger of promoting a good SDR to an account executive, for example, is that you're losing that top of the funnel impact that you have. 
Um, there's plenty of people that I hired earlier in my career who are still in SDR. They're ending up managing big teams, setting strategies in bigger companies. So there's no rule that says you have to do your two, two and a half, three years as an SDR and then move to account management, account exec. Uh, um, different skill sets. There's a potentially less stress in the SDR role. That that's what less stress. Do. Less stress. Believe it or not, when you're an account exec, and I've heard that. that. Yeah. Yeah. You've got that target like a noose around your neck and you get to the last few days of the quarter. It can be very, very tough. And a lot of people as an SDR, once you're outside calling hours, you can pretty much put your phone down, switch your email off. Um, whereas account exec tends to work more around the clock. They're responding quicker, et cetera. So yeah, it could be potentially more stressful and need to work that into how that's going to fit into your work-life balance as well. Simon, how, how do you break that association that uh, you know, a lot of SDRs have, a, a lot of sales organizations have that like the SDR is, you know, the junior uh, position that if you succeed as an SDR, don't worry, you only have to, you know, crack your teeth on this for a year or two, and then we'll promote you to an AE and that's going to be your real job. How do you, how do you turn SDR into more of like a, like, this is a legit position. This is a legit like job and get good at this and you can build a career as an SDR. I think it depends on how organizations see it. If they see it as a more junior role, then they tend to have less success because the people there aren't valued. I mean, I've always massively valued that role. Without an SDR, you can have the best marketing, the best product, the best product market fit. If you're not setting up demos for your sales team, you might as well turn the lights off and you know pack up today. So it's the most critical role in some ways because that's what assists everything. If you use a sporting analogy, whether it be basketball or or football or whatever sport, um, you might have your your star goal scorer, your star um, point scorer in basketball. But unless someone's giving them the ball in the right zone, then they're ineffective. Right. You have been in the sales world, but in different types of products and industries. So I'm curious to know how the sales process might differ, be easier, harder, that may be simplistic, um, jewelry, tech, what have you. I'm really curious to hear what you have to say on that front. Um, when I was selling jewelry or, or custom-made suits, that was traditional one-on-one -on -one sales. And people skip that. We talk about starting as an SDR, but people tend to skip that stage because there's not very much of that. Even before that, I started doing car boot sales. I'm not sure if that's, or maybe trunk sales, you might call it in the US, car boot sales. Thanks for the I, translation. <laughs> when I was a teenager, that I was selling just old records or, or things like that and starting to already develop those relationships with people. One second. Were you actually selling out of the boot of your car? Like you were actually pulling up Correct. to places, just pulling open the trunk and then. Correct. Well, it, well, I wasn't just doing the end of the road. I didn't just block a highway and do that, but there were certain designated <laughs> areas on a Sunday between say nine and 12, you could pitch up at a place, you, you pay your 10 pounds or whatever it would be. And you could oh. sell as much as you want. You'd have your, and they'd advertised it, not on the internet because it was pre-internet days. And that was just great fun. That was, that taught me a lot of my sales skills there. And then the next phase, which you mentioned about jewelry or about selling suits, that is one-to-one -one sales, which is very tough. You're going in on person, you're ringing on the bell of a jewelry store. They don't know who you are and you need to get through that door, build trust very quickly. Um, and I think a lot of salespeople miss that training coaching because it's now all over the phone or by connecting on email or LinkedIn. And I think that's a shame because I developed a lot of skills in those days that I use to this very day as well. Given that, are sales harder? And how does your training adjusted given that the nature of sales has shifted and how they happen? 
Um, well, I was a bit fortuitous when I came to live in Israel from the UK. It was back in 2004. Um, I wanted to keep my job in the UK and I had to pitch my boss at the time. So he said, well, how's this going to work? You know, you're not going to come back every week, which I didn't want to do. And if I was only going to come back once every four, six, eight weeks, whatever the number was, I had to be able to present the case. So back in 2004, I picked up one of the original Skype accounts. I said to him, it's amazing. There's this phone number. It's a UK number, but it rings in Israel. He's like, I don't believe you. And I'm like, no, no, I promise you there's <laughs> that. So I was already doing what you might call today inside sales back in 2004 without really knowing that that was the way it was going to progress. And it's only accelerated during Corona, um, et cetera, et cetera. It's definitely a different skill set. Um, you're not going in face to face and reading um, people's facial cues, et cetera. But it's a, a real talent in its own right to be able to get your message across on a cold call, have your 30 seconds a minute to deliver your pitch, get through any barriers. When people don't really want to be picking up the phone to cold callers during the day. So it's a very, very tough role to, to master. But I've worked with plenty of people who've had a tremendous success through the right um, tactics and way they approach the cold calling. Yeah, it's amazing how it switched. As you say, like in the old days, if I would send jewelry, it's pretty hard to sell if they can't feel it and touch it. And obviously, if you're, sure. you're making a suit, you've got to measure someone. So that's very hard to do remotely. But these days, people almost expect you not to waste their time in a way. They'd rather almost have a minute on the phone to you than you booking 15 minutes as a drop by or knocking on their door. So I think it suits everyone, really. It's more efficient for the companies that are selling, and it's more efficient for the people who are getting those cold calls. Sure. I, can I... Can I... Can I just ask you something as a, as like a veteran, you know, a veteran of the, the sales industry for so long, you've been, you've been working account management and sales. Um, what, what's the biggest change you've seen happen to like kind of the sales funnel, like from beginning to end, like what, what did it used to be when you first got started? Um, you know, maybe not when you were selling out of the boot of your car, but like, you know, the inside sales back in the early aughts, uh, to today, what, what's the, what are the biggest differences in, in how the sales progresses? I think a lot of it's due um, to the whole tag team element of it. So in, in the old days, marketing was seen as important, but marketing then was very, very different. So when you went in as a sales organization, you had to almost do it without any marketing support. These days, the most successful sales organizations have got the marketing backup, they've got the recognition, they've got good landing pages, and they're working in sync. And a lot of the sales teams I've worked with have got marketing and sales uh, in an open plan floor where they can learn, hear from each other. So they're hearing the salespeople call, they're almost hearing the way people respond to objections mm -hmm. that can help them in, when they're coming up with the next marketing materials, for example. So I think it's a, a lot better in terms of teamwork. Um, it's also, as I said, people um, are getting just overloaded because of um, email and when I started pre-email my sales career. So now you can just send out 100 emails at the click of a button. So you, you tend to get a bit lazier. People got, became a lot lazier. They said, okay, I'm just going to send out 100 emails. If one or two respond, then job done. I've booked my meeting for the day. Um, but what's happened then is the, um, it's become very overloaded. People aren't responding to emails necessarily. They're not, they might or might not be looking at their LinkedIn regularly. So you, anyone who's selling today as an SDR needs to be a master of not only the cold call, but to approach people on social media and also to craft very good, concise, emails that are going to get their message across. So helpful. Um, when it comes to marketing and sales, the, the relationship is critical. And I, you've probably seen it gone right and also wrong. So I'm curious to know, what are models of 
collaboration of working together um, that you think should be replicated in other places? What are some key sort of probe? I think it's just having regular, it's all about communication, all about communication, feedback. Salespeople should be working together with marketing on their um, on their sales emails as well. So there's consistency across the brand. There's no point marketing sending a newsletter out promoting it in a certain way and then sales are doing it in a slightly different way and it sends a confusing message. So the most successful models are when they have regular, could be daily stand-up, it could be weekly meetings, but they're communicating properly. And it's when they're seeing each other as assets and not opponents. So I've seen it too often in the past when it goes wrong, when sales are going, come on, marketing, you're not sending me the right people or that your messaging's wrong, you're making my job hard. The, the salespeople that realize that marketing are their best friend, their best asset, and it's in their interest to work and collaborate together well are the ones I've seen in my career have the most success. That's really interesting because I've been in a few organizations that have a very... I don't know if antagonistic is the right word, but you know, let's just go with antagonistic relationship between sales and marketing. Uh, you know, ring sales. Yeah, that should be together. There's no reason at all to be antagonistic. Yeah, uh, I'm a very much a believer that, that it's all about open communication. And without marketing, sales job, it's like selling with one hand behind your back. So you want marketing on your side. Yeah, and sometimes it's organizational. I've seen I've seen organizations that that um, have kind of structures in place that they kind of like penalized sales for, you know, oh, you, you made a deal, you, you, you booked a new meeting, but it came from marketing. So we're going to penalize you on that. And then like, they're kind of incentivized to not cooperate with marketing and pretend like they got these all on their own or, you know, just kind of disinvolve marketing as much as possible. Have you ever seen anything like that? I've seen everything in my career, everything I've seen. It working beautifully and i've seen it where you can go in within 30 seconds or a minute you can tell that they're going to struggle to to really sell the product because sales and marketing aren't even um, aligned at all yeah what's what's like the biggest red flag you've seen when you come into a new organization you want to help them out and like you're you're just kind of investigating their current structure and the current organization um it's one where um sales and marketing aren't communicating properly there they see each other as separate divisions within the team there is a bit of um, competition between them, but not healthy competition. So not yeah. in a positive way. And then you've got the other models where um, SDR sits within marketing and it's seen as hand in hand, the same function. I think as you said, you, were, you used the word yourself, antagonistic, when you've got yeah. in the same company and you've got different divisions who are pulling in different directions and maybe looking at to make their own goals and achievements look better, whereas they're not looking at the company's achievement as one. Who else does sales need to collaborate with in order to work more effectively? Uh, they, they need to just work with product as well. They need to be working across the team. I mean, there's, there's sometimes this attitude that sales are almost external to the company. You've got the product people and they've got their closed walls and they're doing their own thing. And sales might be different personality types to, to the, the tech team, but sales and tech need to be working well. I mean, it, it's the same in, in any company, if everyone's pulling in the same direction, it's going to be a lot more success. Um, so sales and technology that you don't think of that, you talk about sales and marketing, but no one in the, it's using the same breath, sales and marketing. People sure. don't talk about sales and technology, but ultimately if you're selling tech, you need to be able to understand the technology. Tech need to be able to understand that they built a product, but it's got to be something that can be sold by the salespeople. So again, there's got to be communication between the sales and the development team. I'm going to shift gears a little bit, just for fun. Um, 
if you could think about some of your customer client stories or the people you've coached and, and, you know, trained them on how to be better salespeople, what's like a good, either a good customer story or a, a win that seemed so unlikely and then it happened? Um, well, we often get called in when things are, they, they can be fine-tuned and improved. I'm not saying that they're like a complete car crash, but there's definitely work to be done. And it's when sometimes we've been into companies where they say, listen, our salespeople are underperforming. We, you know, we want you to just observe them for the first few weeks, but we're probably going to have to let them go and get rid of them. I always go in with an, with an open mind and, and really just look at everything that's going on. The first months when we work with companies, we're not doing anything really on the strategy side. We're just learning, observing. We're looking at the marketing materials. We're looking at the tech stack, everything around it before we make any conclusions. And often it's the salespeople, there was nothing wrong with them as salespeople. They just were either weren't being trained. They didn't have any interaction with marketing. They were being hung out to dry almost. And sometimes, sometimes the salespeople aren't great and you know, have to make tough decisions, but often if they're coached in the right way and, um, they have their hand held and understand what they really need to be doing, then you can turn companies around and we've had some great success stories of companies where we've taken them from you know two three million dollars to close to ten million dollars in a couple of years and really had a massive impact on their bottom line if you're listening and not watching this on youtube our eyebrows just went up drastically <laughs> so just insert that as a caption simon when when would you say a company you know they, they should start incorporating a sales team and move away from just uh just marketing or just kind of organic growth and is it something that you think a startup should start out with or bring in at a certain point? Well, they need to have some product that's worthy of purpose that can, has got a financial um, value to it. Now that not, might be a, a far lesser value than it will be in a year's time, but it's very important. To well, go what to kind the, of a salesperson are you if you say that you need a product that's worth value to sell? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, you just felt the A really good one. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's important um, to have something that's it could be an, an MVP, but something that you can go to market with. I'm always inclined to go to market a bit sooner rather than later, because whatever product you have built on the 1st of January, 2022, it's likely to be different 1st of January, 2023 anyway. So you're better off getting feedback from the market. It doesn't mean you have to go all the bells and whistles and recruit 10 people, but you need to be getting feedback from the market. And the best feedback is on the sales demos, starting to incorporate customers, getting customer success feedback. So you have to have some sort of product, but it can be something that they know that it's going to be built on and developed over time. And let's face it, a lot of customers in companies that we've worked with and you, you'll be familiar with, they're paying a lot less for the product. They know it's going to be significantly improved. They might end up with a good rate for the next three years, but they're the, the key customers that companies can thank for um, further down the line. The design partners. Yeah, correct. What's your biggest challenge with setting sales goals? And we can even contrast that with a new product versus something that's more established. I think, I think the point about sales goals is they, they shouldn't be rigid and set in stone. All the companies are trying to think in, in a 12, 18, 24 months out. And that's in an early stage company, that's not practical. And things are changing all the time. It could be the pricing. It could be new products. It could be that they're in, integrating more of an enterprise model compared to SMB. So there's lots and lots of, of variables. So I think that when you're starting as an early stage company, it's important to just say, we're going to review this in after one, two quarters, because you need to have the salespeople invested in believing like any target that it's got um, some way of getting to that target, it's achievable. 
So the worst thing you can do is set ridiculously high targets. You end up with demotivated salespeople. The morale goes down. Um, it becomes harder to recruit people if people aren't hitting target as well. So if anything, I'd go lower, let people overachieve because they're the ones who are putting the donkey work in at the beginning to help you sell the product. Do you suggest having one goal or having sort of like a stretch goal versus a conservative goal, anything like that? I'm more of a fan. I know there's a, there's a whole... Um, logic that says you should have a stretch goal. I, I prefer just having one goal, um, just a realistic goal that, that's there. Also like having team goals as well, where people then are, are not going to just say, I'm not going to help you on your demo or draft that email because that's not going to help me get to my target. If there's a team element to it, then I've, I've seen that work very well. And it might not be that um, it sometimes could just be about spiffs and incentives, but you really want everyone working together as a team, uh, particularly beginning when everyone's trying to figure out how to learn um, and to sell the product. In terms of the incentive or the prize, is it always a bonus or what are some fun incentives that work or, so, or if they don't that own that, I guess? No, it's generally, it's, it's amazing how it works. It's generally um, gifts that might have a, a monetary value that you would, um, the, as less than you would expect as a bonus. But if it's something like a physical gift, it could be a weekend for you and your partner in a hotel. It could be a trip overseas. It could be anything. Um, it could be even just cinema vouchers plus um, dinner before or something like that. So it might only cost $100, but the the weight behind that is like almost having a $1,000 reward or a prize. Yeah. So and if you help. ask somebody like what he would prefer getting, usually the answers are, oh, I definitely prefer cash. But then at the end of the day, like the, the team kind of talks about the gifts that they got uh, and they remember them better than, you know, just a cash prize. They, they remember them better, especially if it's something that the kids could, um, they got kids that they could, that could be like a family day out. So then yeah. the kids are like, wow, your company's great. Uh, I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, years ago, or a company that I ended up, the company that I ended up taking my job with to Israel, um, I was a big fan of a football team and they got to the Champions, Champions League final, which was a very big deal. They never got there before. It was in Paris. I was living in Israel, um, just had a baby and, you know, I, I probably couldn't justify paying the exorbitant cost of buying the tickets through an agency and the flight, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, my boss at the time knew I was a very big football fan. And he said, oh, you must be getting to the final. And I said, well, you know, it's a bit expensive, Corey, justify the cost because the agencies are 10 times the price, et cetera, et cetera. He said, oh, you know, how much are they out of interest? And I sort of dropped the figure in. And half an hour later, he called and said, check your bank accounts. Um, I've wired the money to you and I'm expect fully expecting you to go. Now that he could yeah. have put, yeah, hundred percent. He could have put an extra zero on that digit, but the that was something that I'll never forget. And I ended up at that company, um, well, thirteen years in total, and nine years until the company got acquired. So, and that wow. you know, that's just a great example. That's completely it. Did, it didn't come out of any other bonuses, etc. It was just a off the whim gesture that said, you know, you've hit your targets. I believe in you. I want to reward you. I know it's a big deal for you to go. So go. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. That's how you retain your employees. Fly <laughs> <laughs> to Paris. On. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Sonic, can we, get, can we go back to kind of starting a career in sales? I'm just really interested. There's so many different ways to get started. Um, you know, some people kind of it's by accident, uh, some people through necessity. You know, I, I kind of got my start through, you know, starting my own business and I had to, you know, get on the phone. 
what, what are some of the more interesting ways that you see people kind of transition a career into sales and then, you know, make that succeed? And like, what, what kind of backgrounds are the most likeliest to succeed in sales? Great question. So I'll give you my story first of all, and then I'll relate it to the wider market. So I started my career as an accountant, not only accountant, a, a tax accountant in one of the big accountancy firms in London. I don't know why I was never. That's even a seamless accountant. transition coming ahead. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I wasn't even that good at maths. I don't know why I even took the job or got involved, but I was hating every day. I'd been there for about nine, 10 months and every day was painful. I used to leave on the dot of five o'clock, never did anything. I, I was one of the inventors of like silent quitting, I suppose. Um, <laughs> anyway, at some point they said to me, hey, you know, we've got a project for someone and do you want to do it? I said, okay, tell me the project. And they said, it's uh, call any US companies that's got a UK subsidiary and we want to get them into a conference. We want to get 200, 250 people. There's a list here of all the companies that have got US, UK subsidiaries. You need to find the phone numbers and you need to call them and you need to get them to commit to paying to attend this event we're putting on in London. You've got like a month to do it. Good luck. No, no rules. There was no like pitch, et cetera. It's almost like throwing me a old fashioned phone directory and said, these are the switchboard numbers. Off you go. Good luck. Uh, which I did. I, I loved it. I was staying in the office till eight, nine o'clock at night to make sure that I, I got there. Um, completely maxed out the events. Um, it, it was a you know, really enjoyable experience. And they said, oh, thank you very much, Simon. And now if you go back to your tax returns, I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm not going back to my tax returns. I'd, I'd already got the sales bug through that. Didn't know what I, how I was going to get a proper sales job, but I quit on the spot. So I, having had that sales experience, I realized that I was in the wrong profession. Uh, I quit my job and went into sales eventually. So that, that was my own personal story. And I, don't, I generally believe that you don't need to have a sales background to be in sales. I, I prefer recruiting people in a way, especially junior SDRs that haven't got a sales background. The regular experienced SDRs are going to find a job anyway. You know, they've got something on their CV. But there's certain things I look for, Menachem, and it's interesting you ask about characteristics. So it could be that they played sport to a very high level, that they were like a triathlete or they were a gymnastics champion in their youth. could be that they were a very accomplished musician. Something about habits, that they're able to master habits, follow routines, they're very coachable, et cetera, and they could stick to a task. That's something that I've looked for. It's really something in their DNA that you I can... Feel, feel I can tell now, I haven't been in sales for so long, I can tell very quickly if I think someone from a, a non-sales background has what it takes to get into sales. Some of it is obvious things like they, they're good at, with people, they're charismatic, they can hold, um, they, they can build a rapport very quickly in a, in a colder setting, but often it is to do with what they were doing um, previously um, in their background. That's really interesting what you say about musicians, and I, I would have never thought that. But I, I, you know, I can instantly connect to it um, being, you know, a person who's never succeeded in learning an instrument. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like that sort of persistence that you need to just like really scratch out, you know, minute improvements. And every time you sit down um, and learn more and get better and just keep at it, no matter how hard it is and how terrible you sound uh, to start with you know, you could like literally the same thing for sales. So one of my favorite recent examples is someone that I heard who was from a non-sales background. He's one of, in one of the companies I've been advising quite a while. I work mm -hmm. closely alongside him. He was a firefighter for the best part of 10, 12 years. 
And someone introduced me and said, do you think firefighting is something that I feel like you need to really succeed on your first try? (laughs) (laughs) You definitely need to succeed and have a good track record, but also in terms of, of, of courage. And I I thought to myself, if you're prepared to run into a burning building, not knowing what you're going to see and putting your life at risk, are you going to be scared to pick up the phone and and make a cold call? Probably not. Uh, Anyway, he's been with a company for six months and I don't think I've ever seen anyone get off to such a strong start. He booked something like 10 cold meetings from cold calls within the first like five or six days. And he's just carried on that trajectory all the way through. Just uh, such a forceful, strong personality, a quick learner, very engaging person. And yeah, and you you look at it on paper and say, well, never worked in the commercial world, very different um, fighting a fire, but there's characteristics that you take into sales that will help you succeed. Sure. Sure, I could definitely see that. What 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 is it that you you're you're a consultant and you work with companies in order for them to build their own sales teams, or you're coming in and building the team externally and then like working as kind of a contractor like that? So it depends on what stage they're at. So we work onto both models. So sometimes they've uh-huh. got an existing team and they need um, some fine tuning. They need some coaching. Um, they need to align better with marketing because the marketing and sales aren't speaking. Um, <laughs> they're Various goals, they need to go from C to Series A stage. They need to go from 2 million to 5 million, 5 million to 10 million. So that, that's one example. Sometimes they just need help recruiting. So having recruited like hundreds of salespeople over my career, that's something I can help with finding the right people and then coaching, mentoring, training them as well. So either they have an existing team or we'll help put that team together from scratch. So when would you say a company is right for building their own internal sales team, uh, you know, with or without somebody like you to help them do it, but building their own kind of internal inside sales team, SDR team, et cetera, or when are they the right kind of candidate for working with an outside company to kind of outsource sales or outsource SDR? I think at the beginning, it's um, there's a reason why we, we're working with so many clients is that early stage, people want to learn on the job how it's going to work. So they're, they're much more likely in some ways to take an outside agency rather than hire an expensive VP sales CRO to manage two or three salespeople and two or three SDRs. That person is likely to not be hands-on. They're likely to come at a big cost and five or six times out of 10, they're going to be fired within the first year. And that's what the stats show. So it makes sense then to work with an organization such as Pipe Global, which I represent, although there's clearly others out there, where we've, we've worked with 50, 60, 70 companies in the last two or three years. So we've seen almost every scenario under the sun versus yeah. someone who's got a great track record, but maybe the last company they were at, it was very simple to sell and they're not comparing like for like now. What's like the profile of a company that is most likely to succeed with you? Um, generally, um, seed series a where they're trying to figure out and grapple with the, the product go to market fits and mm-hmm. um, also we're working with um later stage companies as well but i'd say it's mainly the early stage companies where they're zero to five million they might be on one or two million dollars and they need to crack the five million dollar milestone or go from five to ten to raise their next round or to prove to the investors that their product really deserves further investment that something's working that something's working right. yes Mm-hmm. Do you find it challenging, like being on the outside of a company, uh, collaborating with their internal departments with, you know, marketing, for example, like you've mentioned? Not really. I mean, it depends how we're introduced. So generally we work with CEOs of smaller companies and as right. long as we're introduced, set up in the right way that we're not there to sort of listen in and 
uh, their job's not under threat, where there is an outside resource um, to help them maybe just fine tune a few things. And we never really go into a company and rip everything up and start again. I'm a big fan of the marginal gains theory, where if something's working relatively well, you don't want to change everything. You just want to fine tune a few things. And each of those little changes, tweaks can have a massive impact going forward. So uh, obviously, if you know any of our uh, listeners uh, want to become better at sales uh, and sales organizations, uh, they should follow you on LinkedIn, yeah. uh, Simon Gersler. I feel um, like I've gotten to know Simon better, <laughs> like or to know him through just following him on LinkedIn. You should really consider doing that. He's a good follow. Okay. Let, let's flip that around on you. Who do you follow? Um, and who else is out there that, that makes you a better salesperson? So in terms of following on LinkedIn, um, I've been following Gong for a long time. Their material is Love them. Not, it's the best, about the best I've seen in terms of marketing. I mean, they are the ultimate marketing agency, but it's backed up by stats and data. So they're not just saying, hey, do this at the beginning of a call. They're saying we've got 500,000 calls that will show why we're giving this, this advice. Yeah. There's the combination. Best example of marketing with data uh, that's out there. I, I think so. So I've been following Gong religiously since day one. Um, and Chris Orlock, who was at, um, at Gong uh, as an individual contributor, who's left recently, I follow him as an individual, probably more than most, because he's just like words of wisdom pour out of his, um, out of his pen, his keyboard on LinkedIn. So Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, Brian Burns from the brutal truth about sales podcast. So he does daily videos in a fun and engaging way, 60 to 90 seconds about a sales topic. And it's memorable because of the way he presents it. He's a very engaging person. He's got probably three quarters of a million, um, followers. So th- those, t- um, are two, uh, I'd recommend Chris Orlove and Brian Burns. Um, any books that you read on uh, sales or sales management? So plenty of, of books I read that, that help my sales career, but they're not necessarily sales-related books, funny enough. Because a lot of it on sales is about, I, I put them in really into three categories. So the first one would be around mindset, grit, um, sales DNA. So that would be Mindset by Carol Dweck, which is a, a great book about um, mindset and staying um, on track. And there's a book called Grit by Angela Duckworth, which is incredible. Wow. So it's a great book. So that, that's something about you know, if you're going to succeed in sales, you need to be set up properly. You need to be able to rise from the lows, have that bounce back ability as a football manager once called it, the ability to take a knock back and get back on your feet. Um, and when I was talking before about marginal gains, so there's Black Box Thinking by Matthew Sieds, who's a British writer for The Times, which is a, he was a professional table tennis player. And it's a lot about marginal gains, like I was talking about before, that marginal gains of having that ability to learn something, absorb it, et cetera. Um, on, on a similar line, there's Atomic Habits by James Clear. And that, was, that ties into what I was saying before about how sports people law. And he was, uh, he's got a fascinating story himself. If you're a sports person or an accomplished musician, or you can do something that other people would find difficult, um, you know, that's a very good one about forming the right habits. So these are all going to support yourselves, but they're not classic. Right. This is how you do a cold call pitch. No, it's it's developing the soft skills that you need, and you can tell a lot about a person by by you know where where they get their knowledge from. Uh, you know, you you've just mentioned so many different um, you know sources of self improvement and like mar- you know like you said marginal gains and you know getting better a little bit at a time, setting a you know a modest goal for each day and and making yourself better. 
um, which is, you know, maybe not something I would apply to table tennis, which is such a like fast paced, like quick game, but, you know, I, I could see how it, you know, how it obviously would make you better, you know, in any sport, you know, contrast that to the other kind of sales persona of like, you know, just, you want to just always hit home runs, but like, that's, that's not, that's not the way the game, you know, but like, yeah. you know, you shouldn't always be wanting to hit home runs, you know, the, the, the game is one with the singles and doubles and hitting them consistently and, you know, increasing the percentage you get on base by, you know, 1% every day, working yourself a little bit harder. Um, and that's a, a very different attitude tick for sales. And um, I think it's one that's, uh, you know, more likely to succeed. Yeah. And something I'll add to that, Menachem, to that list, a couple of other things. So that, that's important to have the mindset, the, the habits, et cetera. But the, the, the real reason I think the differentiators between people that succeed in, and fail in sales is understanding how people operate, what makes people tick. Because I read a lot around neuroscience and psychology. That's an area that I really love. There's a great book which taps into that neuroscience in terms of sales called Influence by Robert Caudiani. So it's like a massive textbook. It's like very thick. It's when I first bought it, I was like, how am I going to read this? It's like my biology textbooks from fifth grade. But uh, <laughs> I went through it and it's incredible. The lessons, it's, it's almost like a seminal text on, on, on selling psychology, et cetera. So Influenced by Robert Caudiani. And there's another book on not on, on the same methodology, but called The Influential Mind by Tali Sharot, who's an Israeli professor. Very interesting book as well. I love um, all the Israeli like behavioral uh, economics and like psychology. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just this like local cottage industry that we've developed. So you, you, can, you can learn any product, you can be coached, but if you don't understand people, how to work with people, then you're not selling properly in my view. So you need to be able to understand people because people buy from people. Ultimately, they're not just buying a product, they're buying into the way you're presenting it and the way you're presenting the company. Let me ask you, because um, our time is coming to a close soon, um, when it comes to giving advice, what's either the best piece of advice you've given or the most common piece of advice you give? I think it, it probably fits into the same category, which is about, uh, and Manaka mentioned it before, it's about consistency. So um, a lot of salespeople, they, they got this roller coaster, they hit target in Q3 and then they sort of relax, I'll hit target and they, they go down, but it's about consistency. And if you look at, again, the top sports professionals, they're people who are improving every day. I mean, Roger Federer, who retired recently, who's still spending probably five, six hours a day on call to uh, training to coach, even like in the latter years of his career. And you'll see anyone who's um, exceeding, whether it be acting or sports, et cetera, they're just investing that bit more in training than the people who are a rung beneath them. So consistency of behavior, of practice, and just keeping that um, effort across time. And the, the best people are the ones that can sort of say, okay, Q3, great, I hit my target, but we're back to zero and it's a, a new game now and I, I'm going to forget Q3 even happened. Okay, so let me ask you, because this made me think of this between the sports artists, is sales a science or an art, or does it really not matter? Just do your job. Um, it's definitely a science and an art. It's something that you can improve in. It's something that you can take um, raw materials of someone like a firefighter or someone who is from a sports background or a musician who hasn't got any, any um, sales consistency or, or background yet, and you can turn them into a, a top performer. And a lot of, so there, there is about coaching and being coachable as well. That's another trait as well. Is it someone who's going to come in and think that they don't need to listen to anyone? They've got all the answers or is it someone that's naturally thinking out, how can I improve? And I'll give an example of one of the clients I'm working with. And this is something that 
I learned from from one of my organizations learning from your students is always the best way so someone who's uh, an SDR and a really impressive guy I'm not going to again not mention names what he did was he recorded himself on zoom over a whole day so it was like eight or nine hours worth of his, of his um, zoom activity well he was calling there but it was just over zoom so he recorded himself for nine hours and then having completed a whole day seven eight o'clock in the evening presumably on double speed he played the whole um, zoom of that eight or nine hours to see where he was losing time how he could be more efficient which was incredible and, wow. and he said that i'm spending too long one of the takeaways was he was spending too long in between calls if someone wanted mm. to get some information he would then take 10 15 minutes and he's like why haven't i picked up the phone again and he then said okay i'm going to do it in my lunchtime or later in the day i'm going to send my emails i'm going to drop down what i need to do but when i'm in the zone i need to keep calling keep calling keep calling so, so hard to get back in the zone it's so hard to get back in the zone but to have that um emotional intelligence to say i'm going to criticize myself and see where i can learn more i thought that was incredible and that's something mm. that um, you know, I as a teacher learned from my from my student, which which is great to be learning from people you're teaching as well. Actually, I had that. I back in the day, I was a fundraiser for nonprofits, and one of the pieces of advice I was given was: once your hand is on the phone, don't take it off for like at least an hour <laughs> or two, because like once you've yeah. mustered up the courage to go for it, just keep going. I love well, that. Well, that's the scene in the the, the pursuit of happiness. I don't know if you remember it, the Will Smith scene when he's he's doing that. He said he. There's a scene where he doesn't put the phone down at all. He said, if you put the phone down, you lose X seconds. He said, mm -hmm. when he was filing, he did not put the phone down at all. And he was able to make more calls um, as a result. That's good. Um, well, Simon Gressler, uh, I think the theme of uh, today's episode was consistency um, in selling. And um, thank you so much for you know opening your eyes to that and sharing all your sales wisdom with us. It's been an absolute pleasure, Menachem and Sharon. Thanks for hosting me. Thanks for joining us for today's brew. Like what you heard? Let the world know. Leave a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Subscribe now so you never miss an exciting episode. See you soon. <laughs>